I invite you to open your Bible to Exodus chapter 21. Be reading Exodus 21, verses 1 through 11. Now these are the rules that ye shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment money. Let's bow together and pray. Father, these verses in your word are difficult. And Father, not because you have done anything wrong, far be it from you to ever do anything wrong, to have ever inspired anything unworthy of your name. But Lord, our world is so corrupted, our hearts and minds are so affected by the fall that we have a hard time understanding these verses. And so Father, I ask that you would be merciful to your sheep today and give understanding that no one would be led astray from the truth or from the mercy or the goodness of who you are. But Lord, as a result of this time, we would have our faith established, our convictions assured, our trust in you more firm. May you reveal your goodness to us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Received a number of comments after the message last week as we tried to unpack some of the thoughts from these verses regarding uh, slavery that a number of people said that they'd never heard a message preached about slavery before. Um, I'm, I, I know that there are messages, plenty of messages that have been preached and uh, more faithfully than I have done regarding that topic. Uh, but really the only reason that it was preached here was because it was the next passage in the Bible. Uh, and if you were to choose, or if I were to choose passages that I prefer to preach, that one wouldn't have reached the top 100, uh, probably. And, uh, and so it's necessary, however, that we deal with the whole counsel of God's Word and trust that whatever He's put into His Word is profitable to us. In the same token, we understand with this topic, there are so many sensitivities that come along with it. And I would refer to you to what was said last week to establish really the groundwork that as we discuss this topic of slavery and as it brings up these associations in our mind of the horrific atrocities committed in the United States, that these verses are not referring to that. As a matter of fact, God's word outlaws and calls sin what was done in the United States. And so as we come to these verses, we have to work hard not to impose our 21st century ears on an ancient text. These words are in many ways from another world, another time, another culture, another location. And yet we hold firmly that God's word and all of it is inspired by him and profitable. 
And it's our job as believers to drop down into the world in which it was written that we might understand it rightly. And I take that you are hearing this and eager to understand what this means as believers and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you would not attribute to God any kind of wrongdoing, any injustice, any ungracious act on his part. You know that he is good and sovereign and wise in all that he does. I take that for granted that that is your heart attitude as we come to this. You're not looking to find fault in God or in his word. But this might strike you as curious. What is going on here? What is the scenario in which these uh, words are being given? And so I take, if anything, you have a curiosity rather than a skepticism. And that's kind of the heart attitude that I'm speaking to this morning. It will be our topic and our goal to unpack what these verses are referring to. I think the main, perhaps, idea to take away from this is the whole context of what's happening here. Israel has been led out of slavery in Egypt. They've been brought to the mountain of Sinai. They've been given the Ten Commandments, which are the really the laws that are to pervade the whole of their life and society. And now for the next few chapters in the book of Exodus, there are these uh, particular um, laws that are given that are addressing very specific circumstances and situations that show how God's ways are to be lived out among God's people. And the first of these laws, amazingly enough, that are addressed to God's people following the giving of the Ten Commandments are laws about slavery. I wouldn't have written it that way. That's not the first topic that would come to my mind as I try to give laws to a group of people who are now to follow God. And yet, I think it's telling that these are, in fact, the first of the laws that are given for a couple of reasons. First, because God has just delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt. And it shows God's heart towards slaves. And second, I think that the whole of the law that God gives to Israel has a very strong emphasis on caring for those who are likely to be oppressed. And perhaps in society, in the social stratum, there are no people more likely to be oppressed than those who are designated as slaves. And so at the front of these laws that God gives, he gives instructions for people who are likely to be taken advantage of, and his laws are really protections guards around those people so that they will not be taken advantage of. In the text here, there are two cases. The first case is a man who is to work for a master in order to pay a debt. The second case is a woman who is leaving the protection of her home or the home of another. Both of these are in vulnerable positions and could easily be taken advantage of. But God's law will repeatedly emphasize protection for those who it could be very easy to take advantage of. And one of the measures of the righteousness of God's people as a whole is how his people take care of the very people who would be easy to take advantage of. The classic example is the orphan and the widow. And so in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, we're told that that nation of Israel that has gone astray into unrighteousness is now to wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. It's an interesting text in the book of Job. As Job is speaking in chapter 31, really laying out some excellent proverbial wisdom. And he's trying to find out why he's in the calamity that he's in, but in the midst of that, he kind of speaks these golden gems of wisdom. And in Job 31, verse 13, he says, giving us a picture of what a household would look like that would have slaves in it. He says, if I have rejected 
the cause of my manservant or my maidservant when they brought a complaint against me? What then shall I do when God rises up? When he makes inquiry, what shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? You hear Job's words there. He is convinced that if he mistreated his manservant or his maidservant, then God would have just cause to be treating him the way that he's being treated. Job sees it as completely unrighteous to mistreat anyone in his household, much less a manservant or maidservant. It is those who appear most vulnerable who are the ones who it is easiest to exert power over. Again, the widow and the orphan are such easy illustrations. What power does a widow have? What power does an orphan have? And that's why they were so easy to take advantage of and still are. But there are two others who are in danger of finding themselves under the authority of a master who would be unfair to them. And I think that's what these cases are addressing, protecting people who would be easy to expose to harm. It's not necessarily the case that what's being said here are bad situations or bad relationships. I'm simply saying that they are relationships that could be easy to take advantage of. In some ways, the measure of a society will be how does it take care of the weakest and most vulnerable to abuse? The text here in Exodus 21 is necessary. It's necessary because the world that we live in it is a Genesis 3 and afterward world. If you ever want to think very quickly about how to interpret the world that you live in, or the Bible that you read, you simply have to ask the question, does this come in Genesis 1 or 2, or does it come in Genesis 3 and afterwards? And if you answer that simple question, it will explain a whole lot about what you're trying to study. We live in a Genesis 3 and afterward world, which means that we live in a post-fall, corrupt, sinful world that has lots of problems in it. And the biggest problem that exists is the corruption in man's heart. And one of the expression of that corruption is the desire for man to take advantage of the disadvantage of others. One of the theologians I've been reading in preparation for these messages says, quote, people, not property, were at the heart of Old Testament legislation. A good part of this legislation is concerned about the rights, limits of control, and personhood of sales. End quote. And I think that's helpful because it shows that core of the law is about protecting people. And it protects people from other people. There's corruption that exists in our heart that expresses itself in the mistreatment of others. And much of the Old Testament will be seeking to restrain oppression and pronouncing a judgment on oppression and calling for righteousness. Isaiah chapter 58, verses 6 through 7 says this, Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. God's not interested in religious external observances that are divorced entirely from the conduct that we show towards others, particularly towards the disadvantaged. And so the kind of fast that God chooses is not one that is strictly the absence of eating, but includes the presence, mercy, of righteousness. And the law that was given to Israel was given 
to reveal sin, to show just how corrupt our hearts are, and then also to constrain sin, to keep it from going wild like a weed that just has no boundaries to it. So Israel was to live as a nation bounded by God's law. Certainly there are elements that would raise Israel back to the level of approaching the Garden of Eden in a sense. But at the same time, it has such laws that deal with the realities of theft and murder and mistreatment of other people. And so by no means is God expecting some sort of utopia to happen within the boundaries of Israel. He is rather expecting to constrain their sin as he also reveals it to them. That's the setup for this text. Let me give you uh, now a walk through this text and let's make some observations that are right there within these verses. It starts out in verse 1 that these are rules that you shall set before them. This is God speaking to Moses, if you recall, because Israel was terrified of God after hearing him speak from Mount Sinai and wanted Moses to go to speak to God and then God would come through Moses to speak to the Israelites. And still, it is crucial that the Israelites hear and receive what God has to say. And he is giving them rules or judgments that are to be set before them. Israel needs to have these placed before them, things that they need to live by. They're not free to go out and do whatever they want, create their own world rules and construct their own manner of righteousness. They are constrained by the law of God. I take a few observations though of the kind of rules that are now given because these rules, in a sense, are very different from the Ten Commandments that have just been given. I'll give you a couple of observations. First observation is that these rules about slaves have as their main theme going out. Look at verse 2. It says that he shall go out free. Verse 3 says he shall go out. Verse 4, he shall go out. Verse 5 I will not go out. Verse 7, she shall not go out. This is the same word that's used throughout Exodus for the people going out of Egypt. Exodus chapter 6, verse 7 says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out. It's the same word from under the burdens of the Egyptians. This is really helpful to us because it shows that these laws are really not exhaustive laws about the ins and outs of slavery within Israel, but rather it's about the ins and outs of freedom from slavery. That's what this is about. And it also be crucial for us to understand that it would really defy our interpretive principles if we were to think that the same God who brought Israel out of slavery would then give a law that in any way condoned the kind of slavery they experienced in Egypt from which he brought them out. God, by the very act of bringing Israel out of the slavery in Egypt, condemns that kind of slavery. And that kind of slavery is the one that is most akin to the kind of slavery experienced in this nation. And so what God is talking about is really quite different than here. The second observation I want you to see from these verses is that there are these verses that are oozing conditional statements. If you do this, then you must do this. This is called casuistic law, case law. Look at verse 2. It says, when you buy, or verse 3, if he comes in, verse 4, if his master, verse 5, but if the slave plainly says, verse 7, when a man sells his daughter, verse 8, if she does not, verse 9, if he designates, verse 10, if he takes, verse 11, and if he does not. That's very different, isn't it, than the Ten Commandments, which say, you shall not. The Ten Commandments are called apodictic laws. That means they are 
always true. There are general laws that apply in every and every circumstances. But these laws are case laws. They set precedents and provide scenarios from which all the nuances of life in Israel could be judged. It's not giving all of the details that could ever happen within life. That would be impossible, wouldn't it? It would take a book longer than the Bible to explain every last scenario that could ever happen within Israel. These, however, are giving some precedents that will help later judges, priests, and kings make wise and good determinations about cases that come before them with all of the particulars that come with it. It's case law. This is not saying you must buy a slave or you must sell your daughter. That's very different. Observation number three. There are two sections. One section in this text is about male slaves. The other section is about female slaves. And I think it's important to observe that these laws are not primarily to benefit the masters, but they are primarily to protect the people in a position where it could be very easy to oppress them. There's laws protecting slaves. Observation number four. The laws regard Hebrew slaves. The law is specifically governing Hebrews who enter into slavery. Verse two says, when you buy a Hebrew slave. These are the people who are standing there at Mount Sinai that day, receiving the law of God and his promises. These are people who are covenant people, who are going to inherit the land, inherit all of the promises that God has to give them, to whom God promises to be good forever and ever. What begs the question, though, doesn't it? What about non-Hebrews? What about them? Well, since this text is not about that, I don't want to spend too much time, but let me give you just a few reference points. There is allowance in the book of Leviticus for the Israelites to buy slaves from other nations. But we must not still think of it as the same kind of slavery that this country has experienced. Abraham, in Genesis chapter 7, 17, is given a covenant of circumcision. Now Abraham, it is said, had many servants, slaves. He had over 300 in his household. You see that when he marches out to war. But in Genesis 17, as God makes a covenant with Abraham, covenant of circumcision, he says in Genesis 17, verse 12, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Go and study the topic of circumcision, and you will see that is monumental for the person who enters into slavery in Israel because it means that they are going to experience then the blessings of the promises God gives them. Furthermore, it's told in Exodus chapter 12, verse 44, every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. What's he talking about? He's talking about the Passover. The Independence Day meal for Israel can be eaten and ought to be eaten by the slaves that Israel has that are circumcised. And they then celebrate with Israel God's great redemption out of slavery. And again, it would be so ironic the kind of slavery Israel is practicing is the same kind of slavery Egypt practiced, and then the slave has to eat those meals with the Israelites, thinking, man, I wish I could just be delivered like they were. That's not at all what God intended. A slave became part of the household. They experienced what the household experienced, so much so that a part, that a part of the household could become the heir 
This is what Abraham was dealing with before he had a son. He was wondering before the Lord, is Eliezer going to be my heir? That's how much a part of his household he was. So those are several observations that help us approach now specifics of this. And I want us now to first see how male slaves were protected through clear expectations for release. Again, verse 2 says, When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. It doesn't tell us the scenario of the acquisition of the slave. And by the way, that same word for bought can be translated as acquire. But clearly the way that he's going to acquire it is through some sort of payment. This is the typical way that it's understood that a slave would come to be a slave if he was a Hebrew. Uh, it says, one theologian says, quote, since the land could not be sold, it meant that the only collateral available to the Hebrews was their labor power, end quote. Here's the scenario. The land of Israel was going to be allotted to the tribes of Israel. They could not sell that permanently because it was an inheritance that God was giving the people. But there could be times where one of the Hebrews fell into a measure of debt that he could not pay back. And he can't pay it back by selling the land in perpetuity. And so the only commodity he really has to give uh, payment to his debt was his own labor. And the way that he would do that would by giving his labor to somebody else, not for payment direct to him, but as payment for a debt that he owes. And this would be the likely scenario into which he enters into slavery. 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 1 says, Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. You get the picture. A wife who's lost her husband, has two children, she can't pay off the debts. The creditor is coming now to make good on the debts, and the way he's going to do that is by taking the children as slaves. Now clearly this is not good. That's the whole point, and God shows it's not good by having Elisha mercifully provide for the woman in that miraculous way by providing oil that wouldn't run out. And she's able to sell the oil, pay the creditor, and then live off of the rest of it. And so it even shows in that situation, when there's a debt to be paid, God was not looking at it as good for those kids to be sold into slavery. So let's think a little bit more about what's going on here. Because this is the most popular idea for how people entered into slavery as Hebrews. Look at Leviticus chapter 25, verses 35 through 43. It gives pretty strong parameters about this situation. Leviticus 25, verse 35. Says this. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly. You shall fear your God. That's a pretty striking passage. 
Because it's really making plain that any Hebrew who has fallen on hard times into the level of poverty where he cannot sustain himself or his family, the kind of poverty, not like we see in the United States, but maybe elsewhere in the world, where they don't know where their next meal is going to come from. All they have is maybe the clothes on their back, and even that is owed to somebody. That kind of poverty. In that case, those people are not to be ruthlessly ruled over, but rather provided for and treated like a hired servant welcomed into a household. So that's the additional law that governs how Hebrew slaves were to be treated. If you could even call them slaves, it seems like Leviticus 25 is even shying away from the terminology of calling them slaves because of how well they are to be treated. So this text in Exodus 21 does allow for some sort of servant-master relationship but even according to the Mosaic law, a Hebrew poor man is not to be treated like a pure and abject slave. In Nehemiah chapter 5, we see how incensed Nehemiah becomes at the manipulation of the wealthy over the poor in his time. This is after the Jews have returned from exile in Nehemiah 5 verse 1. It says, Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. People who fall into a position of disadvantage then get taken advantage of, and it's so bad that they can't even acquire food without selling their children into slavery. God's law nowhere endorses that. Verse 6 of Nehemiah 5 is Nehemiah's response. He says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent. They could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Not endorsed. In fact, they're indicted for what they were doing. It ends that those who had been doing what was wicked restore what they had taken. The main reason that there was not to be a domineering slavery practiced among the Israelites is simply this. It's because they already had a master. Leviticus 25, verse 55 says, For it is to me that the people of Israel are servants. It's the same word that's used, Eved, slaves. They are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh your God. Because God's people belong to him exclusively, no other person should think that they have exclusive possession of that person. And so whatever kind of slavery Israel had was to fall under the umbrella of the reality that God had absolute dominion 
over the lives of his people. God, by the way, is a good master. Best. There were still, however, situations where there would be culpable failure to pay debts which could lead to the punishment in the form of enslavement. Jesus tells a parable in Matthew chapter 18. And famous parable about forgiveness, but as you likely know, parables were really common stories. They usually have a bit of a twist to make the point. Matthew 18, Jesus tells the beginning of this parable, he says in verse 23, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. He goes on to say that the king forgives him. It's really a story about the unforgiveness in that servant's heart. But it shows that there's a situation where there's a, a culpable liability for a debt that is owed. And it could be that there would be punishment for not paying the debt. This, I think, shows us the reason for the slavery being spoken of in the Mosaic Law. I think the clearest reason why there is slavery is conviction for criminal activity. I can't say that it's the exclusive reason for why a Hebrew male would be sold into slavery. And I would invite any of you to search the scriptures and see if there's another reason, but I find, as I look in the law, the only explicit rationale for anyone being sold into slavery, any Hebrew male being sold into slavery, is because they have, in some way, committed a criminal activity. Most commentators conjecture that the slavery referred to here is a debt slavery, but as I've tried to show you, Leviticus 25 makes pretty plain that you can't really call that slavery because you need to treat that person with such compassion and tenderness when they fall in on hard times. But there is a kind of debt that could be a criminal debt. And there's a clear incident, instance in Exodus 22, verse 2 and 3, that shows a time when a man would be sold into slavery. It says, if a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be no blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. That law has more to say than what I'm referring to, but notice at least that there is somebody breaking and entering, stealing something, they're caught, and the requirement is that he has to pay back what he has stolen. In Exodus 22, verse 1, it gives what the liability is. It says, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. Steal one, you got to pay five. It's pretty expensive. Crime doesn't pay. But what if, what if you can't pay? Well, it says if he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. Man's caught stealing. He has nothing to make restitution. The only commodity he therefore has is his labor. The man who is stolen from has no need for his labor, potentially. And so he's sold, and the money would go to the one who was stolen from, and yet somebody else would now have the labor of that man. And basically... It's payment for the crime that he has done. It's punishment. Slavery as punishment is shown on a more massive scale when God's people disobey him. They basically commit crimes and don't obey God 
it says that God sells them to the nations. Judges chapter 2, verse 14. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. That's for the nation of Israel as a whole, but it shows that the selling can be a form of punishment. You might think, well, that's an archaic form of criminal justice. But I think that this was meant to be disciplinary and restorative. And if you just for a moment compare that attitude of criminal justice with our own society's justice system, it might be kind of shocking. According to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, which is going to keep track of incarcerations and release, it says about 66% of prisoners released across 24 states in 2008 were arrested within three years, and 82% were arrested within 10 years. Our own criminal system that relies on incarceration and locks people up for who knows how many years finds that after incarcerating people for however length of time, within 10 years, 82% of the people who are locked up, imprisoned, are arrested again after being released. How's that system working? But you sell a man for his crime, and he enters into a house to work for six years. And that house is to be governed by the law of God, where God's law, as Deuteronomy 6, is talked about when you rise and when you sit, as you walk along the way, from morning till night, God's law is to be taught, to be lived, to be meditated on. And that criminal is having a household experience there, learning God's law. Don't you think that would be restorative, redemptive, so that after six years and he's released, he has a better chance than the criminals do in our country of living a life in accord with God's ways? Which person has greater freedom the Hebrew slave who works for six years, or the American inmate who has an 82% chance of being incarcerated again. I don't have the ancient Israelite statistics. I wish I did. But I think the system has something to merit it. Even in the scenario where it's criminal activity that has led him into that situation. There are protections for the one who's enslaved. And protection number one is that he worked six years and he's released in the seventh. That's the first instance here. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. It's a reflection of the weekly Sabbath cycle for Israel. Six days of work and the seventh is the day of Sabbath, which, by the way, applied to servants and slaves alike. I'm not sure that this seventh year is either referring to the Sabbath year, which was to happen every seven years on a cycle in Israel where they took a break from their farming, or if it's the seventh after working six years straight. Either way, there's a definite ending date. And when they are released, they're not required to pay anything when they are released. It's totally free, debt paid in full, new life in front of them. Not only that, but Deuteronomy chapter 15, which is the parallel passage, says this. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your winepress. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this day. As far as I know, when somebody leaves our prison system, all they get to take with them is what they went in with, that little box of watches or wallets or whatever. At least that's the way it's portrayed in movies. The Hebrew system 
When you are released, the master sends you off with your arms weighed down with gifts. So that's the first protection. There are also protections for his family. The first two protections aren't hard to understand. If you go in single, he go, shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. He has to have his family there with him, and he goes with her. But what about when he gets married while he's enslaved? Well, it says that if the master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. That's one that sounds a bit strange to us. Why would the master give him a wife in the first place? Well, he couldn't acquire one on his own because he has no money to pay the bride price that would be required when he gets married. And so his master, who provides everything for him, his housing, his clothing, his food, also now provides a wife for him. First Chronicles chapter 2, verse 34 and 35, we have an illustration of a master giving a slave a wife. It says, Now Shishan had no sons, only daughters, but Shishan had an Egyptian slave whose name was Jara. So Shishan gave his daughter in marriage to Jara as a slave, and she bore him Atai. In this case, it was to keep the family line going. Also, it wasn't a Hebrew slave, but I think the picture is clear. The master is almost having the slave come in as his son, and he's to keep the line of his family going. And so he gives his slave a wife, his daughter, and it propagates the family line. I take it that this would be a relatively rare occurrence, but obviously it would happen, and so there's a law for it. And the question comes, well, when he's going to be freed, I mean, that's the first protection, he's going to be freed, what's going to happen to his family? What's going to happen then? Well, I think we need to remember that it is the master who is financially invested in the marriage. It may seem strange to us and certainly not customary for us, but there are still parts of the world where large sums of money are customarily paid to the bride's family. In a BBC article, it uh, tells a story about the paying a, bri a bridal price in a nation in Africa, and one husband who paid the bride price says, I'll just say roughly, it's enough to put a deposit on a mortgage for a UK property. It's a large sum of money just as it likely was in Old Testament times. And so the master would make that payment so he's financially invested. And not only that, but recall, slaves are treated like part of the household. They're welcomed into the family. They're part of the goings-ons of what happens in that household. And the husband, the wife, the children are all cared for and provided through that family. And so it is the law that the master would retain the wife and children. But I think the question that's more directly answered by the text here is, does this slave have to leave his wife and children? And the answer to that one is no. So then the reason that the slave would leave his wife and children, in this case, if he were to be set free and he leaves, he doesn't have to. The reason he leaves is because he doesn't love his wife and children. And if he doesn't love them, wouldn't it be better to have them be with the one who will protect and provide for them? What if the slave loves his children, but not his master? His wife, but not his master? I think it's a legitimate conclusion that after he is set free, he could redeem his wife and children. He could pay the price, and he could have them as his own. And it would show a measure of responsibility in his new life that he's now living. This environment that likely began in a circumstance that was criminal on the part of the slave has led to a new family. And should the slave, upon his opportunity to be released, determine that he loves his master, his wife, and his children, then he can also clearly state this and become the slave or the ebed forever of that master. And there's protection here because it's not coercion that would lead him to do this. He has to plainly state it. It is of his own volition and will that he says it. 
it's his decision. In that case, there's a ceremony that happens. He's led before God. He's brought to the door of the doorpost, and the master puts a spike through his ear and becomes a slave forever. One commentary notes, quote, that this significant ceremony was intended as a mark of permanent servitude and was calculated to impress the servant with the duty of hearing all his master's orders and obeying them punctually. You might look at that scenario and think, it seems so improbable. Would anyone ever really feel that way about a master? I think the answer for us, for every one of us, ought to be absolutely. A sinful man is acquired by a good master, given a new start on life, and pledges himself to his master completely and totally. Rather than scoff at this, we realize this is the very picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Could it be possible that a kind of master exists who someone would want to pledge themselves to their will for life. Who are we to criticize that? Have we done otherwise? If you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, have you not surrendered body, mind, and will to him? Have you not found him to be a good master? Are you not a slave of Jesus Christ? And yet you know that you are more than a slave to him. You're the one for whom he died. Do you not know that everything you have comes from him? That he is the vine and we are the branches? That to depart from him we leave everything behind? Do you not know his absolute goodness to you? To reclaim you from a life of sin? That he has provided for your life and breath, house and home, food and clothing? And are you to do less than to pledge yourself to him and all that you have to him forever? And do you not now have an ear opened up to hear him? And are you not to be marked before the world as belonging to your good master? And do you not credit him before the world with everything you have? Is not everything you ever do to be done at his word and according to his will? Are you not a slave of Jesus Christ? If you are, then you can understand this passage. And if you aren't, then I don't think this passage will ever make sense to you. We don't have time this morning to go through the next section. God willing, we'll get to that next week. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge once again that the Lord Jesus Christ is our master. We belong to him because he bought us with the price, and the price was his own blood. We praise you that you have given us a, a taste of what it's like to belong to a good master. We thank you that your ways are always wise and always good, and that we can trust you and trust your word completely. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to be a people that are humble before you, obedient to you and your will and your word in all ways. And Lord, I pray too that you'd also help us to be a people that do not take advantage of the disadvantage, but we would seek righteousness and justice in our life as you allow. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.